you do, find Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Let me encourage you, I'm going to read all of chapter 25, and it's going to seem a little weird. You're kind of going to go, what's, what's he about to do? What is any of this? A big box in the tabernacle a lampstand and a table have to do with me. So I want to say I'm going to read it, but I want you to stick with me because the Lord has put this here for, to teach us an incredible lesson about who he is and what he does. So let's look. Exodus chapter 25, we've been working our way section by section through this book of the Bible, and we come now to the section about the furniture in the tabernacle. And God has given it to us for our good and his glory. So let's look together. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from him. This is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skin, goat's skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. You shall not, you shall not be you shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one of the cherubim on one end and one cherubim on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with its wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I'll give you in commandment for the people of Israel. 
You shall make a table of a kea wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand width wide, and, shall, and molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its legs. Close to the frame, the wings shall lie as holders for the, for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the table of presence, on, or the bread of presence, on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered wood. Its base, its stems, its cubes, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out for the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms and their calyxes and flowers and each calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece with it and the whole of its single piece of hammered work of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and its trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This is the word of God. The Bible is not just a collection of books randomly thrown together. Sure, the Bible is 66 books with over two dozen human authors, but ultimately the Bible is one story with one divine author with one storyline running throughout. Genesis opens with mankind in a garden in right relationship with God. And the book of Revelation ends with mankind in a garden city in a restored relationship with God. And as you read through between Genesis and Revelation, there's these moments where the past and the present glory break into the present. We saw this last week in Exodus chapter 24 where Moses and the leaders of Israel, they were on Mount Sinai and they saw God. He appeared before them in all his glory. The future glory of the renewed earth broke into the present creation. Heaven came to earth there on Sinai. And God desires for all his people to enjoy that level of fellowship with him. He wants to take all of mankind back to Eden, but Eden 2.0. Eden better. And in fact, Exodus 25 to 31, which we're going to study over the next several weeks, meant, is meant to give subtle shout-outs back to the Garden of Eden. It's meant to cue to the readers who were reading it, 
that this tabernacle was more than just a giant tent. It was a doorway back to Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks seven times in order to create. And in Exodus 25 to 31, you'll see seven times the words the Lord said to Moses. And then he goes on to talk about the building of the tabernacle seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, there's even instructions regarding the Sabbath and taking a rest, just like the seventh day of creation did. God wants to recreate Eden and take it on tour, right? He wants to take them back and take it on tour. Sinai is an example of Eden and the future new creation breaking into the present, and God wants to bottle this up, take it, and take the Sinai experience on the road. Think of the tabernacle as a sort of Sinai mobile unit, God's presence with Israel as they travel through the wilderness. And friends, the tabernacle is a big deal. Just think about this. The tabernacle will stay with God's people from this moment when they build it all the way up to the days of Solomon. And the days of Solomon, they're going to build a temple that's going to be laid out just like it. Think of this. Out of all the stories of the book of Exodus... We all can think of Moses' life. Did you know the first 40 years of Moses' life get one chapter in Exodus? The actual Exodus that the book is named after gets two chapters. The Ten Commandments get half a chapter. The Tabernacle gets 13 of the 40 chapters of the book. Friends, God wants to tell us something, right? He desires to dwell with his people in a house. And Exodus 29, 44 sums up well the purpose of the tabernacle. It says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, that's another name for the tabernacle, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that the Lord, that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God rescued them out of Egypt that he might dwell with them. And before God instructs them to build a house, God wants them to buy furniture. And so just like you, I don't know if you're, me and Dana loved, we love to go to Lowe's. We went to Office Depot one day last week, and we just looked at office chairs we could never afford. There was a $700 office chair, but it had a giant cutout of shack next to it, and I sat in it, and it was good, right? And just like you might dream about how you would build the perfect house. God's going to have them build the perfect house, but he wants them to contribute to handcraft furniture first. And particularly, he's got three pieces of furniture. He wants them to build the Ark of the Covenants, the Table of Presents, and the Golden Lampstand. And each one are meant to teach us about God's intention and desire to dwell with us. But before looking at those, the first nine verses say that the nation was to give toward the project. Every person was to give of their heart. Each person, it says, give fine wood, gold, linens, stones, and more. Each person was called to step out in faith without fully seeing the whole picture. But they could trust because it was God who was speaking to them through Moses. But as I was reading this, I thought to myself, but 
this is a nation in the middle of the desert. Where are they going to get all of this? And the incredible thing is that God had already given them everything they needed to give for the tabernacle. God had already given them. God did not call them to do something. He did not equip them to accomplish You can write this verse down in your Bible if you're curious. Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. As the people were being rescued out of Egyptian slavery, the plagues were so bad, the Egyptians gave them all their nice stuff and said, please get out of town. I'll give you everything nice I have if you will just leave me alone. The Egyptians were plundered, and now God is showing them what he wants them to do with all this extra blessing. He says, use it for me. And God had given them this plunder, this additional blessing. And friends, God is teaching us that often he will give us more in order that we might use that more for him. And he says to his people to build a place, a sanctuary, a house where he will dwell with them. And he wants to start with the furniture. Again, each meant to be a picture of God dwelling with us. And he says, here's the first thing I want you to build. I want you to build a throne where God rules over us. That's the first thing he builds, is a throne where God rules over us. I want you just to look at verse 10 to 15. He says, build an ark of wood. Now, the ark was a box. I want you to imagine, if you were a gamer, you know what I'm talking about here, the classic treasure chest that you might find. Imagine that made of a kea wood and gold, expensive, high-quality materials. And then he says it's two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits in breadth, and one and a half cubits in height. Now, you're not going to go to Lowe's or Home Depot today and find a ruler that measures in cubits. Some of you, this is going to make sense because you're folks that just understand measurements like this. The cubit was, was a measurement they used that measured from the tip of the middle finger down to the elbow. That was sort of the measurement because they didn't have tools back then, so they'd kind of measure like this, right, when they would measure things. And it's around 18 inches. So that makes the ark around 40, 45 inches long and 27 inches tall. He says put four rings on it with poles so it could be picked up without having to touch the ground because, again, the tent was mobile. It needed to move with them. We're told that the ark was to contain the testimony that God was going to give to them. That's the stone tablets, the commandments that he's going to get off the mountain. And we read later that, that, the, that, the, that it's going to contain the manna from the wilderness and even Aaron's staff. But here's what we're told at this point, Exodus 25, verse 16. Now you shall put into the ark, now you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So they put the word of God in there, right? And then verse 17 to 22 gave instructions about the mercy seat, which was the lid for the ark. The word for seat is the word for covering. And we'll come to learn that the mercy seat was where they gave the sacrifices, which were symbolically to cover the sins of the people. But here's what we're told about the ark, or about the mercy seat. Verse 17 You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half shall be its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seats. 
make one cherubim on one end and one cherubim on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with its wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat, so the faces of the cherubim be. So he says, build them and build them like this, pointing toward each other. Or you could look at this picture of what the mercy seat likely, or, and the ark likely would have looked like. See the cherubim pointing in toward each other? Friends, that's significant. That's super significant because in the Bible, cherubim are always seen guarding the presence of God. Think about it. In the garden, when Adam and Eve are expelled over their sin, what stands at the door of the garden? A cherubim with a flaming sword. Let's understand, these weren't the cute little babies with wings you see at Valentine's Day. These were scary, heavenly warriors of God. In Isaiah's vision of heaven, cherubim were before his presence. And by putting cherubim on the ark, God is giving a symbol of his presence there in the temple. A drastic symbol of what we're told in verse 22. He says, there at the ark of the covenant, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. There, before the cherubim, from the ark, God will sit and speak with his people. The altar at the ark, God will come and meet with them, and he's going to instruct, he's going to rule and going to judge. Friends, it's not just a place they gave sacrifices, it's a throne where God sits, where he dwells. Now, we may not see this right away, but friends, this teaches us something incredible about the nature of God, because if you were to be around in Moses' day and they were to read this, this was actually pretty standard for temples, in Moses' day. Lots of temples had arcs and statues of angels and such. That really wasn't unique. What's really unique, though, is what wasn't there. There wasn't an idol. There wasn't an image of God. God was not like the other nations, gods that could be contained in an image whose glory could be captured. Most of the arks in the ancient world, the cherubim would have been facing, and then they would have had an idol hanging above it. But there was no idol in the temple because no image can capture the greatness and glory of God. God is spirit and cannot be seen, and he's too wonderful to be crafted. He is uncraftable undrawable, the essence of the uncreated cannot be shown through created things. Even when God appears in Exodus 24 to Moses and them, it appears he's appearing through some sort of vision. Through uh, There's this sapphire stone that they're looking through. It's also possible that they might have only seen an angel who was a representative of the Lord. Regardless, God cannot be seen and he cannot be expressed in images of human imagination. This is why we have the second commandment. Do not make an image of me. This is why Paul, standing before the pagans at a place called Mars Hill, says this, Acts 17, 29. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like human or, or gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here at the Ark of the Covenant, we get a visible picture of an invisible reality. A reality that led the Apostle Paul to burst forth in worship and to say this in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the ark reminds us that it's the invisible God who rule and reigns over all as king. The tabernacle reminds us that God is fundamentally not like us. He is holy, incomprehensible, uncontainable, glorious, and powerful. And it was in the tabernacle that he would burst forth to meet powerfully with his people and rule over them and instruct them. The future glory and the past enjoyment of Eden would come into the present and he would rule over them. In fact, Moses would often enter into the Holy of Holies where God would be, and he would receive instruction from God. And so they're asked to construct an ark as a throne where God rules. But he's not done. You need more furniture, don't you? He says, second, build a table where God provides for us. He says, build a table where God provides for us. After the ark, God wants them to build a table. And much like the ark, he says it's going to have a key of wood and gold, gold rings and poles on its side that it can be carried. It was two cubits by one and a half cubits, so 36 inches by 27 inches. Here's a photo what that table likely looked like, right? And here's what we read, verse 29 to 30. Look what he says. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The bread of the presence, there on the table of the presence. If you read the old school King James Bible, it calls this the showbread the shoe bread in some translations. And we get more about this over in the book of Leviticus. And here's what we read about this bread that they put on this table. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It was from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. So here's what we see. They got this table, and they, break, they baked bread every week. They likely baked it on Friday night. They put it out on the Sabbath, and we read they baked probably somewhere around five pounds of bread every single week, and they baked it in 12 loaves, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and in the tabernacle, the priest would eat breadsticks while they're working in the temple. Praise God, right? And the bread was before the presence of God, and it's called a perpetual dew, his portion forever. And again, if we were in this ancient world, we wouldn't think this was weird because they had temples. And in fact, it was actually pretty common to put food in temples. But often they did it because they had a belief that their God needed to be fed. He needed a snack. 
Yet, friends, this isn't the case here. Our God does not slumber, he does not sleep, and he does not eat. Our God doesn't need a snack and a nap like we often do. Friends, but here's the reminder of the bread to us. It's that God will provide for his people. God will provide for his people. The bread recalls when in Exodus 16, you know, as they've been going through the wilderness, as they're at Sinai, everywhere the nation's going to go, God's going to give them bread every single day and twice on Friday so they can collect it for the Sabbath and not have to collect on that day. The bread is a guarantee for the people that God will continue to provide both for the priests and to the people according to his grace and kindness. And it is a witness to us because God promises to provide for us. And we can actually be assured of something greater than the showbread. Because friends, God didn't give the showbread for us. He gave the bread of life for us. During the Passover, as everybody's thinking about bread, the unleavened bread, Jesus stood up among the people, and here's what he said in John chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is telling us that he is the bread of presence the ultimate example of the provision of the Lord. Because, friends, the bread in the tent was going to eventually rot and mold, right? But Jesus provides everlasting satisfaction and hope. And Jesus is actually the perfect example to know that God will provide for you. And that doesn't mean he's going to provide everything you want, but that he will truly provide everything we need. Because think about this. If God would give his son for you, what is everything else by comparison? The apostle Paul would say it this way, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We love to sing Jehovah Jireh, right? That's a name of God that means the Lord will provide. But we need to remember that wasn't given in the context of a car or a job. Though God does provide earthly blessings, it was given in the context of a ram in a thicket provided in the place of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And in an even greater way, Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide, provided his son to be a sacrificial lamb in your place. Friends, the showbread is a reminder to you that our God in heaven is a God who provides and one who would even provide the bread of life. And so he says, build a table where God provides and will take care of us. Build a throne, build a table. And finally, he instructs them to build a tree. A tree where God gives life to us. Now, you'll see the last thing they get instructions for is a lampstand. But I want us to notice here in a second how he describes this lampstand. I want us to understand, if you've ever seen those Pixar cartoons, you see that little lamp guy that jumps at the beginning? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking more like, if you've seen Beauty and the Beast, the sort of Lumiere, the the candle guy on there, kind of like him, but with extra arms. This is sort of what the lampstand would have looked like. It was a menorah shaped much like a tree. 
And in fact, they use tree language throughout its description of it. Look at verse 31. And I want you just to note, maybe even underline if you're an underliner, whatever you want to do, the, the words that could both describe the lampstand and a tree. Here's what he says. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches out of lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond flowers, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. Isn't that interesting? We have all this language here of a tree. We're not told he doesn't give us how tall the lampstand was. We are told that it's built with a talent of gold and a talent this would have made it somewhere around 75 pounds. This is a big lamp, right? And one source I read this week said it was probably five, six feet tall, but could have been even more than that, likely. But notice the tree-like language, the stem, the calyxes, the flowers, the branches. And the purpose of the lampstand really isn't hard to figure out. What do lamps do? They light stuff up. Look at verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. So the lampstand brings light. So then you're thinking, why make it look like a tree? I've never met a tree that gives light. Because trees were and are symbols of life. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures, how often light and life are brought together. How often there's this connection because the lampstand is ultimately meant to stand for the tree of life that was in the garden, pointing the way toward the presence of God. Life and light are often connected throughout the scriptures. Let me show you this in just a few places. You can write this down. Genesis 1, when God created all things, the first thing he ended up making in the seven days, light. He brought light into the world. Think of the famous ironic blessing, Numbers chapter 6. We've even sang this before where it says, hey, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The light of the lamp stands for life offered by God in his presence. The lampstand stands in the place of the tree of life. The lampstand is an invitation. The way to God's presence is lit up and ready to be entered. God reigns from a throne, the Ark of the Covenant. He provides from the table, and he offers light and life from the lampstand. And you might be asking yourself, but pastor, what does this lesson in furniture have to do with me? Because God built all of this to point us toward the truth of who he is. What he's built here on earth was meant to point toward realities in heaven. Let me show you this. In the days of Moses, it was only the priests who could enter the temple, and the high priests could enter into the center of the temple 
But we see now that there is one greater who has entered into the Holy of Holies who's able to bring us along with him. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. Speaking about the tabernacle, it says, It was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, he says, what, what was here on earth in the tabernacle is a copy of things above and reflects what's above. And then he says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Here's what he says. As incredible as it is to have a temple and an ark, and all of this, the greatest news of all is there's one who's entered into heaven, who's fulfilled all of this symbolism that we might be able to enter into the presence of God. Here's the message of the tabernacle. God doesn't just want to save you. God wants fellowship with you. God wants to dwell with you. And God's presence, friends, was not confined to priests in this tent forever. He would make it available to all through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better priest with a better sacrifice of himself. And he's entered into an even better place, into heaven itself, because he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he ascended into heaven. And it says he serves now there on our behalf. Anyone can get in on the good news of Jesus. The tabernacle is actually teaching that you and I, any of us, can enter into the presence of God, but we must come through the priest, through Jesus, not through me, not through any of the leadership here, not through an earthly priest, but through one who died, has risen again, gone to heaven and said, hey, I can welcome you in. Jesus welcomes into God's presence any who turn to him by faith that all may experience life and light. In fact, even after the tabernacle was destroyed, God's people continued to remember it in a ceremony called the Feast of Booths. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, talk more about that if you're interested. And in fact, Jews today still celebrate this holiday. And it actually, funny enough, begins next weekend. September the 29th, then goes for a full week through August the 6th, or October the 6th. And Jesus, around this festival, back in his day, stood up, and here's what he said. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the lampstand. And he says even more, Jesus is the God who ruled from the throne of the ark because he's the invisible God who has taken flesh in order to save us. Jesus is the one that provides from the table because he's given himself as the bread of life. And Jesus is the God who invites us to walk with him in light and eat of the tree of life. All of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, even down to the furniture in the table, is all in the tabernacle, is all about Jesus. It's all about him from the good Eden in the past to the glorious recreation in the future, Jesus is the focal point. 
And the Bible tells us that one day God is going to take what occurred on Sinai and was enjoyed in part in the tabernacle, multiply it and spread it all over creation. You know, God always takes something and multiplies it. And he's going to take that presence enjoyed in the tabernacle, multiply it and spread it everywhere. This is where all of creation is heading. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 and 23 John gets a vision, and he says, I saw no temple in the city, and from its temple, and for its temple, is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, the furniture were types and shadows pointing to the one who is the light. But the message of the, the furniture doesn't remain. The Ark of the Covenant is not going to be found, was likely destroyed when the temple was destroyed. But friends, the message remains as relevant to you as it ever was. The presence of God remains open to you. Fellowship with God remains open to you. But you got to go through his mediator. Through Jesus Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And none, no one comes to the Father except through him. Will you take hold by faith of the hand of Jesus and let him, through his righteous and perfect life, bring you into the presence of God? You know, the tabernacle also teaches that none of us and none of ourselves can just waltz into the presence of God. That a good life, religious works, none of that is enough to get us into the presence of God. We need the righteous life of another. And that's why Jesus is such good news to you. Today, if you would not say that you have true fellowship, that God doesn't dwell with you and you with God, today you can right where you are, call out to him to save you, and he can walk you right into life with God. Eternal life doesn't have to begin when you die. It can begin now for you today through faith alone in Jesus. And I'll be down front. I'll be at the door after if you'd like to talk to me. But regardless of who you are, friends, we're also able to walk right into the presence of God and worship. And so today, as we get an opportunity to sing to him May we draw near to him because the Bible says if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. May we enjoy the presence of God today. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you built the tabernacle, yes, for the nation of Israel there in the wilderness to be able to take your presence with them wherever they went. But Lord, you also built it to instruct us because you desire to be with us wherever we go. And you have put yourself no longer in temples made by hands, but rather through faith in Jesus, you've put yourself in us through the Holy Spirit. And so today we draw near to you in worship and pray that you are pleased and honored by the worship we have to give. 
But Lord, I also want to pray particularly for those today who do not know you, who do not have a, a saving fellowship and relationship with you. The Lord, you will call them to yourself now, that you'll draw them into life to take hold of your hands. The one who offered his life as a better sacrifice and who stands today as a better priest in the presence of God and trust in you and you alone to save them and to bring them into life everlasting and full of glory. Lord, be honored in our worship today as we respond and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.